Hey everyone, this is Terry Anderson. Welcome back to another episode of Digging Through Dominoes. Today I have a fantastic guest and someone I'm honored to call a friend, best-selling author, founder and director of Better Dads, Rick Johnson. How are you, Rick? I'm good. How are you? I am doing okay. And I forgot to mention you've also you're also a motive or were you're retired now motivational speaker very sought after and i think you said you were also speaking with promise keepers i I did speak a number of times with promise keepers yeah both in canada and the u.s so i thought so yeah so how is it down there in my native state ah i love it it's uh it's free and it doesn't rain well it does rain it it, all at once we had hail like this big while back and uh but it's so, I don't know, you know, Oregon, I miss the, the nice, clean, cold water to drink out of the tap because you can't drink the tap water here. No. And I miss the food, surprisingly. Portland's a pretty foody area. Really? I miss the food in Texas. I, you know, I don't know. I haven't found a good, you know, you can get a good steak, but you'd think barbecue and Tex-Mex, but I'm not finding them. I don't know where they're at. So maybe they're down further south than Dallas. I don't know. You need to get check out um, a place called Joe T. Garcia's in Fort Worth. I've heard of that place, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Garcia's, huh? Joe okay. T. Garcia's. Joe T. Garcia's. Okay, I'll check it out. They're awesome. And then a, fr- a friend of mine, her her father, who re- recently died, owns um, or owned a chain of restaurants, Polito's and... Can't remember the rest of them, but yeah, there's some really great, great Tex-Mex there, which they don't have here, right? <laughs> at right. all. Well, I wanted to talk to you. This book that I'm reading, "Overcoming Toxic Parenting," right? I have some things. My notes, as you know, me are going to be <laughs> absolutely scattered. But I there was there were some things here that I had um, highlighted. This book is is so validating. What, where does this fall in your line of books? Yeah, it was really kind of outside the because I usually do parenting, marriage, relationships, masculinity, that kind of stuff. And I thought the the home life I came from was very abusive. Uh, both my mother and stepfather were alcoholics and and emotionally and physically abusive and and you know i it took me a long time to i don't know that you ever heal from that but to get to the point where it wasn't dictating how i lived my life and the choices that i made it took a lot of work to do that and but i but i kind of had a a way that i did it that I wanted to share with other people who maybe had been through the same circumstances, because there's a lot of frustration, I think, out there with people that come from that background. It's, you know, it's shame-based. You don't talk about it usually. Uh, You don't see articles about it very often, um, how to heal from this type of stuff. And so I, you know, I just felt compelled to put some of this down for people who maybe had been through those types of things. Maybe, maybe it would help people to, to, to be able to get some, some uh, balance on where they wanted to be in life and stuff. So. Well, wow. It, it, I mean, in the introduction, you have this that just really hit me and it's, we don't know 
what we don't know. Right. What brought you to knowing or realizing, admitting yeah. that that was the situation? Did you know it all along or were you like me and it didn't hit you until you were totally destructed? <laughs> right. Well, I, I think all of us that come from that environment think that's normal. Yeah. And I think the first inkling I had was when I got married and I would do something like my family had done and my wife would be like, what do you do? I was like, that's, that's what we do. That's how we do it. It's normal. It's not, that's not normal. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy there, you know? And then, you know, it just led from there, I think, to, you know, I was angry still, had a lot of internal issues that were dictating the way I live my life that I didn't like mm -hmm. being that way. And so I just started looking into some stuff. And one of the things that was really huge for me was I went to a adult children of alcoholics meeting because I thought I was the only person that had these feelings that had been through these experiences in the whole world. Right. Right. That's pretty intimidating. But I went in there and like every person knew exactly what I felt like, what I'd been through, what I was saying, you know, it was just like so empowering to meet these people that had been through the exact same thing that I had and realized that I wasn't alone in the world. And so mm -hmm. that kind of led to educating myself on the problem, going to counseling, finding mentors, um, those types of steps, I think that are pretty necessary in order to, to heal. Again, I'm using that word heal, but I'm not sure that we do heal, but we at least learn to reprogram our, our neural pathways to be able to make, choices and decisions that aren't dictated by the models that were set for us. And that's, and so, that's interesting. If I can cut in just a second, people don't realize that being raised this way actually changes your brain. Right. No, they've done studies on, on like two or three year olds that have been abused and they have the same kind of PTSD and brain problems that men that have been in war, you know, terrible situations have. So it's a very serious thing that we don't give a lot of as a culture. I don't think we give a lot of um, energy and money to it. Just like fatherlessness. We don't, right. we know that's a huge problem. Now, when I started 20 years ago, nobody really thought about it. Right. Now there's been a number of people like me that are kind of promoting that. And, and we now realize, although we don't still don't spend any time or money or energy trying to, trying to address the problem. We put mm -hmm. band-aids on stuff, but right. we'll fix the issues. So Exactly. And if you come to, and this was hard for me to verbalize and understand. I know my father did the best he could, and mm -hmm. he was doing what he thought he should to right. provide for our family. But him being a corporate pilot... And being gone for about 27, 28 days a month mm -hmm. was abandonment over and over and over and over right. and over. Well, especially if your mom is crazy or whatever, you know. She <laughs> was, like... Yeah, mom, I loved, this was a huge point for me, was when I could realize what my parents did, but still know that I loved them. And that came when I started wondering why I was having a hard time looking at my mom's pictures. Uh, but I could look at my dad's. 
Interesting. And that's when I, that was just a few years ago. And that's when I finally agreed with my therapist that we need to look at my childhood. That right. was painful to open it up and start Very having painful. those memories. Yeah, it's hard. And then with as emotionally neglectful mm -hmm. and physically abusive as my mother was, she wasn't mm. as physically abusive as children I've taken care of from the foster care system. Mm -hmm. It was normal for that time and right. day. Right. But when you're left bleeding from hot, right. hot wheel tracks, you know, along right. your legs or a belt buckle, that's, right. that's not cool, but it was accepted then. But it, it was more, a book that got me was about the emotionally absent mother. Oh. And that was my mom. She just didn't know how to do it. Sure. Well, and I think that's what I had to finally resolve was that the parents that raised me were not good parents, but they were better than their parents. Right. I mean, what I know of their parents, they were much better parents, even though they weren't good parents. So right. it was like, you know, you kind of got to, I guess, give them a break at some point and say, forgive them at least uh, for yourself. You don't forgive them for them. You forgive them for yourself. Otherwise you're carrying that around your whole life. But, and that's difficult. It's difficult to even talk about forgiving an abusive parent. Right. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to. <clears throat> and I understand it. You know, it's hard. It's difficult. Why should, why should you forgive somebody that you were innocent and you got abused, right? That was right. supposed to care for you and love for you. Right. But it's for you. It's not for them. Right. It you is. It is. You know, I, you mentioned adult children of alcoholics and I think I spoke to you privately earlier, you know, several weeks ago, I ended up in an adult children of alcoholics just with a small women's group. Mm -hmm. And I remember halfway through that, this was, let's see, my son is 32. So this had to have been, 31 years ago and halfway through it, I, I became very, very, very angry with my parents. Mm. And at the end, I came away with knowing my parents had done the best they could with what they had, mm -hmm. but that still didn't open the box. I kept shutting the box on. Right. I'm going to put you in the trash can. Um, dad having affairs with the people that he was flying, mm -hmm. um, and telling his 12 year old daughter about this and saying, would you like this person for a step mom? Oh, I've been, you know, that that's a horrible position to put a kid in. It is. Yeah. And dang. Wow. Yeah. So you figured this out when your parents were still living. Right. Did you have a chance to reconcile or sort of, did you talk to them or did you just change your, uh the way you interacted? They were not amenable to talk to about anything like that. Right. Um, I know when my first book came out, my mother <laughs> went ballistic because there was one line in the book that says I was raised by alcoholic parents or something. And so she went ballistic, right? It's just like, yeah, probably not a good time to talk to her about this. But Right. Um. No, I, you know, I mean, I reconciled to the point where, especially when my mother was dying the last several months, um, reconciled to where we talked to each other and at least were civil to each other. But as far as talking about this subject, uh, and I may have shared this with you too, but my ex-wife did a very interesting thing when she was younger. Um, she had come from a very abusive home. 
and she um, wrote her mother this four-page letter <clears throat> describing all of the things that that she needed to know. And at the very end, she wrote something. She, she called her a bitch at the very end, and she just should not have done that because she—that's all she focused on. The rest of the letter was nothing. Just that one line. You mm-hmm. called me a name, right? It's just like, you know, I just right. gave her an excuse to ignore everything else, you know. It's gloss over how you made me feel and pick right. up on the one word that speaks to how. I'm the victim now, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's like with, with my mom. After I moved out. Well, up to the Northwest in 1990, we started to cultivate a relationship, a really good relationship, I thought. We spoke several times a day. But after her death, I realized it was the same way I was brought up. It was all surface level. Mm. There was never anything deep right. about it. Right, exactly. And, and and I think people that are that are wounded like that from that generation are scared to talk about that stuff because yeah. it's it's opening up stuff and turning light on stuff that they don't they don't want to have out in the open and get air on it. Right. And they don't yeah. I, in a lot of ways, I don't know if they even understood it themselves. I don't I don't think they did because I know m- most people that I've come across tend to live their life making choices and decisions, being motivated by what was modeled for them as opposed to recognizing and understand what's causing them to make these decisions. Like, just an example, you know, women choosing a wrong kind of man and they do it over and same kind of guy over and over and over. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have went there. Every relationship I have had has been the wrong. You know, I mean, where does that come from, right? I mean, it's it's from model behavior, and you just don't know why you're why you're titillated by that kind of a person or whatever the whatever the feelings are. You know. Do you think that part of that is trying to seek to mend or fix the problems of the past, or is it just that's what we're comfortable with? Probably both, but because um, nothing's been mended. I, I also know somebody from your situation probably has father issues that she wants masculine affection, uh, and she's willing to do about whatever she can to get some masculine affection, and, and and that may be unhealthy masculine affection, or it may be healthy. And a lot of times, women from abused backgrounds are uncomfortable with healthy masculine affection. They're much more comfortable with unhealthy masculine affection yes. because they feel at home, they feel more in control. Uh, I've been dating a woman and, and every man that she's ever been with has cheated on her. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see in her eyes when we're talking that she wants to trust me, but she's just not willing or able to get to that point yet. Right. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of things and we don't, we don't recognize, and, and some of it is instantaneous. I, these are simple and stupid examples, but when my kids were smaller, so coming from a home with adult or with alcoholic parents, a loud noise, especially in the morning with hungover parents, was, was bound to cause a very negative reaction. Mm-hmm. So to this day, if somebody sneaks up and startles me, 
I respond with a fight or flight response. I do too. And and it's instantaneous. It's all I, I can't stop it and think and say. And of course, I tell my kids that, and they would sneak up behind me as often as they could and scare me. Right? I mean, poking a bear with a stick kind of a thing, I guess. But um, you know, it's the same kind of situation. We make those decisions, and they seem logical, but we haven't really thought through them. It's we're just responding almost uh, instinctively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like chasing after something you don't know. It's a ghost. You have well, no yeah, you idea what's know, driving you. You don't know what you don't know, right? And right. Um, I talk in the book about developing those neural pathways that you have to do in order to make different choices and decisions in your life. And it's it's not easy, but once you develop those and use them, the more you use them, the bigger they get. And mm-hmm. so they supersede some of those other ones that kind of get pushed down into the back because those you're not using them as often anymore. Right. So it's like, you know, once you learn how to ride a bike, you really never forget. You mm-hmm. get back on a bike again and, and, and ride it whenever you want. Driving home from work, you, you'll get home at 30 minutes. You have no idea how you got home because you were daydreaming or whatever. But instinctively, those neural pathways knew where to go and how to drive and how to get you there. You didn't have to think about it. Right. So that's the kind of thing you want to develop new neural pathways in your brain in order to take over some of those things that are causing you to make decisions you don't like. And I think that's part of your book. I need to read over and over and over <laughs> because what my decision right now is no more relationships. Mm. I don't trust people. I don't yeah. trust my family. I don't trust right. my extended family. I don't trust myself. Right. Uh, and then again, I'm thinking, hey, I'm 60 years old. Why don't I just live the life that I didn't get to live because I was made to do this and this and this and this that I should have never been made to do. I've had several other people tell me we're reliving our childhoods the way we wanted to live them instead of, and I thought that's a pretty good analogy because that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm going anywhere I want. I'm eating whatever, I, you know, I'm within reason, but, right. you know. You know, I wonder if that's kind of my motorcycle, part of my motorcycle. And, you know, Indeed. the tattoos, especially on my arms, are um, started out to prevent self-injury. But then I started liking it even after I had told my daughters, no tattoos on your arms because I had seen this woman at the gas station, you know, in Oregon, we can't pump our own gas. Right. So I'd seen this lady in Washington, a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, her bra straps half down, her shirts Mm -hmm. all tattered. She's just, she looks like she's had a really tough life and she's full sleeve tattoos, which to me now I know pretty much says I've had a pretty tough life. Yeah. Well, I think the defense mechanism too, it's like, Stay away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to some degree, it's, it it's is a little scary, right? I mean, it it really is. Um, you know, I won't name this person, but I'll tell you this because I found it interesting. A pastor of a church I used to go to about thirty years ago is um, we kind of reconnected a few years ago, and he started sending some very inappropriate messages Mm. and a lot of them had to do with 
something being very sensual about mm -hmm. a female biker with tattoos. I'd say that's inappropriate for a pastor to. Uh, that's pretty inappropriate. <laughs> I ended up calling him out on it. He said, you know, I've got a problem. I've got a problem. I've got to stop drinking, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't care what your excuse is or how much you think you need to talk to me because you, you have mastered your speaking skills. Mm -hmm. He's mastered his speaking skills and was convinced if he spoke to me, he could get me to go along right. with whatever it was. Right. Thankfully, I was like, no decision made no you're a creepster <laughs> right but so yeah i think in some way they are they <clears throat> are taboo and i'm the black sheep of my family i know that i've known that since i was a kid and well, it's, go, go ahead. ahead i'm sorry no it's okay no, i was just going to share with you that i had tattoos on my forearms when i was in the navy and I got out and started a business and, you know, I'm out golfing with CEOs of other companies trying to, you know, and I, I, the only people back then that had tattoos were bikers, convicts, and maybe sailors. I don't know, but not many people had tattoos, right? especially not right out in the open on their forearms. So exactly. I actually got those off. I, I kept the two I had on my biceps, but it's just like back, back in the old days, you know, it was taboo, like you said. Well, so. it was. And now where I live, if you don't have a tattoo, you pretty much stand out. Right, exactly. If you yeah. don't have tattoos that can be seen, you stand right. out. If you don't have piercings, you stand out. Right, what's You're, wrong with that piercing? Yeah, Yeah, there are very <laughs> few people. And what is it with Portland's culture? I, oh, gosh, that's a topic we probably don't want to get into. Don't but... get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to escape. That's why I'm in Texas, not in Portland anymore. Oh, man. I, I just, I envy, envy you and I don't. Um, if if I had to move back to Texas, I think I would go to the hill country. Uh, that's nice over there. It is. It's nice there. Austin's as liberal as Portland. I mean, Austin's just as bad as Portland. So Yeah, but if you go down to like... Um, New Braunfels or San Antonio, right. places like that. Yeah. I'm thinking I can ride my motorcycle and I'm not going to be right. smothered up. Yeah, I don't have to yeah. stay away from Austin, you know. And you can even ride without a helmet if you want down here. You know, I tried that one time in Hawaii and it yeah. lasted for about 30 minutes. Really? And I, I just couldn't, I huh. couldn't do it. It was after I had been in, a, in an accident where my bike had wow. been totaled. Right. And I just, I just couldn't do it. Well, it's probably stupid, but. But I guess like, people love it. And it's, I'd you like know. To get a motorcycle, but. They want to do it. Go ahead. Yeah. So you had mentioned about your father died recently. Right. My biological father died recently. Oh, okay. And he, he wasn't the one that had raised you? No. No, but we, we did meet when I was 24 and we did develop a great relationship. Oh, and, good. And it was, he was, and he was a good man. And he, it was so healing to me to have a father figure that told me he loved me. He was proud of me because I'd never heard that before from anybody. And 
it was just very healing to have it healed those holes in my heart, I think, which was probably a big part of the process of me healing and getting over some of those issues from childhood. Um, but yeah, in my mind, he was a great man. So um, that's incredible. That's incredible. You well, mentioned whole show what one person can do. You know, they can they can damage you terribly, or they can heal you. It just mm-hmm. depends on how they approach it and, and what they're what they do. You know, so right before my mother was killed, she was the conduit through which all family information flowed. Right. So I really was never able to never really spoke to my dad and when I did it was just a few words mm-hmm. he and I took several long road trips through the south that were very uncomfortable in the beginning because we didn't know how to talk mm-hmm. and my dad was the type if I went to hold, hug him he would almost kill himself trying to back away from me right right after mom died he was calling you know, I'm in Oregon. They were in Texas. He lived in Weatherford. They, he was calling or having someone call me like every hour. When are you getting on the plane? When are you going to get on the plane? When are you going to be here? When are you going to be here? So I got down there and dad and I spoke some during that first, those first, that process of having Mm -hmm. to my mother's funeral and everything. He was an alcoholic. He had always been an alcoholic. But that's when he would talk. And we spent the next 13 months, I was there about two weeks a month with him. You know, I would give anything to have my mother back. But the gift I got in her death was the gift of my father. Yeah. Yeah, it sounded like you guys reconciled pretty well. We really did. You know, one of the first things I remember that he took the leap of faith with was saying, now I know how important it was and is to hug people and tell them you love them. I never knew before. Well, and that's so interesting because, you know, I spent 20 years talking to men about how important fathering is. And most of them didn't know that. It's like nobody had ever told him how important it was. And they like, it's almost like you could see these light bulbs coming off when I give examples of why fathers are important right. in the life of the children. And, and of course, our culture didn't never tells them that they're, that they're important. So, yeah, I think especially men of that generation, A, they were raised, their job was to provide. That's it. Mm-hmm. There was no mom took care of the house, all the emotional feminine stuff he didn't deal with. So he's raised that way, believe that. Second, he's uncomfortable because he doesn't have the skills to be able to even be in touch with his emotions, much less to be able to articulate them and and make people understand what he's feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I I think a lot of men from that generation get a bad rap maybe when they were really just products of their culture, just like men today are products of our culture. Um, for better or for worse. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, with, with both of my parents, there was no father involved. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. were not my grandmother's. One of my grandmothers left. My mother's mother left her husband. 
and then I have a feeling, I'm not really sure what happened with my dad's parents, but they split. My grandmother was difficult, his mom. Mm -hmm. And so she gave four of her kids away and she kept my dad. Mm. And she kept him to use him as a pawn in New Orleans. You could get free Catholic boarding school and you could get all these things if you had a kid. So she had a kid for her convenience. Mm. But they they lived in New Orleans for 12 years so he could go to Catholic boarding schools. And in those 12 years, there were over 30 houses that they lived in that she lived in. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, my dad had absolutely That'll no. That'll mess you up as a kid, right? What was that? That'll mess you up as a kid, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my <clears throat> dad was brought up basically by nuns and priests. Yeah. In New Orleans. Right. So there you go again. And he alluded right. to things after mom died, but he, they were, they were things that he, I don't think he could ever come out and really say. Right. But dad at least had an awareness where my mother didn't have an awareness of trying to listen to us when he was sober. Um, and trying to make up for the time that he spent away. I remember I gave him a book one year. They had all these memories and everything. I, you know, what do you get your parents to have everything? So I made him this right. book. And it was filled with good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful. And my mother said he cried for days. And after she died, he told me how much it meant to him. Because he figured by that point in his life, he was wondering if he had been around enough when we were kids to remember anything. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the only reason I remembered so much is because I remembered the times he was there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been talking about um, <clears throat> making decisions based on what was modeled for you and not really recognizing what we're doing. And I just give you a quick example from my life. Um, our, when our daughter was born, my adult daughter, um, every woman in my mom's lineage and every woman in my ex-wife's lineage had been single moms. Wow. Yeah. So our goal is to break that generational cycle, right? right? So how do we do that? I mean, first we talk about it. We educate her about it. Of course, she's drawn to friends who have single mother parents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, you know... It was a lot, a lot of, I mean, a lot of work on both of our parts. And our goal literally at that point was to, because she was a, definitely a strong-willed child. Our goal at that point was definitely to get her graduated from high school without being pregnant and unmarried. Mm -hmm. And we did it, thankfully. And she's still not pregnant and not married either, which I wish she was both. But right. uh, that just goes to show that you can do it. It's really hard and you have to be very intentional about what you're doing in order to help to break those kind of cycles. So, And so many kids, I think, are brought up unintentionally. Mm -hmm. It's just however the parent feels that day. I have some very successful friends and family who were telling me about their life plan that they had when they were a kid. And I'm thinking, you had a life plan when you're a kid? I was trying to survive when I was a kid. I didn't have a life plan. <laughs> how how great would it be to be 
have parents where you develop a life plan and they would help you to be able to achieve the goals that you wanted to achieve in life. I mean, my stepfather's comment when he found out I was publishing a book was, what the hell does Rick know about writing a book? Well, I write enough that somebody's paying me money to write it. So apparently I know something, right? Wow. You know, you said life plan. I had somewhat of a life plan. I remember thinking, one thing really set off this train of thought when I was younger, and that was we would have huge Christmas Eve parties at my mother's house, and Christmas Day would be at my aunt's house. And the tradition was always to take a family portrait of each individual family. There were two sisters and my mother. And when I looked at those and my aunts and my cousins and uncles are hugging each other and laying on each other. And then when you looked at my family's portrait, we're like this, right? you know, there's six inches between us. And I remember thinking, I want to be like my aunts. Mm. I could see them loving their kids. I could see them being physically affectionate with their kids, which is nothing we ever got or I ever right. got I can't speak for my my siblings but I wanted to raise my kids the way my aunts I saw raising right. their kids and so that's something that I tried right and that's very important to have that role model to to see and sometimes that's all it takes is that like my ex-wife is like I just decided I didn't want to be that kind of person mm-hmm. and sometimes you can make that decision but she did have people in her life who had modeled that she could look up to. You asked me earlier about when I knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think as a kid, I knew, I think I've talked to my brothers and sisters about this. And I think we all knew something wasn't right, but you're shamed if you yeah. raise questions or talk to anybody outside about it or whatever, that's a bad thing. And so you kind of stuff that and continue to live your survival of your life and, and, um, but I think I knew all along. It's like, I didn't want to be like these people. This is, this sucks. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so and it's, it's so conflicting or it was for me because I loved my parents, right, but right. when dad would get home from a flight, you know, and 10 o'clock in the morning, we're sitting in the kitchen and he comes and fills a tumbler with vodka right. and looks at you with that look that says, don't you say one word. <laughs> you know there's a problem. Now, after my mother died, he was drinking really, really heavily. Mm. And at that point, he had told me all he wanted was to be with my mom. They Mm. had just broken ground on her dream house. And at that point, I sort of had accepted that's the way he's coped all of these years. Right. They self-medicate, right? Yes, self-medication. And so I, he would give me the keys. Mm. And he would tell me, you're the only one that is not nagging me about stopping drinking. I'm like, Dad, what good is that going to do? It's just going to push me further away from you. Right. He's like, you're right. <laughs> mm. So it, it, it was... It was hard. You know, well, it, it's... I'm glad you got a chance to reconcile with him. That's important. I mean, it really is. Because I talked to a lot of people and they they didn't get to reconcile and they regret it their whole lives. They do. Yeah. 
They really do. Um, and it's, you know, I, I, we were talking about the generation that raised us and therapy. I've said this before. I mean, it was taboo for them. Right. It was sort of akin to being locked in a, in their minds in a mental institution. Right. And with, well, with tattoos on their arms. About, you don't talk about that stuff. No, anyway, you drink it. Family, right. Yeah. You drink it or you beat it or you. Right. Yeah. We don't talk about that to other people. No, no. And it was, you know, I had prayed for my, my dad for years and years and years and years, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned through that is, well, two things, it worked. And two, never, ever pray whatever it takes. Right. <laughs> we, yeah, you we, got to be careful about how you pray. Yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> we went through the rape of my daughter stalking oh. of my daughter my son was hit by a i'm so sorry oh That's thank so you it's it was crazy it was so crazy we had know? just acts not accident incident after incident after incident after incident after incident after it was just like an avalanche of things that happened but with each one i could see my dad change huh. and my little grandson, Josiah, was about 18 months old, and he was playing on the steps up here. And he, I had a big standard poodle at the time that ran by and knocked him two steps down carpet. My um, youngest daughter pulled him by the legs. He had a lacerated tongue. It wouldn't stop bleeding. So I was, you know, out on uh, 205 in Stafford Road, there's that little Winker's Corner. Right. We were out there for bike night uh, for the 9-11 memorial. Right. And this was in 2007, so it was like September 11th or 12th. And we got the phone call that Josiah had been, you know, what had happened. I was like, you need to get him to the hospital if his tongue has been bleeding for more than 10 minutes. So they took him to Adventist. And they did scans that showed broken bones, fractured skull, and bleeding on the brain. Then they oh started questioning my daughter how her first son died. And then they started questioning my other daughter on her capabilities as a caregiver. Right. Well, I'm in touch with my dad all this time, and I'm noticing his voice change. And he said, the baby will live. He said a lot of other things. But he was so convinced that the baby was going to be okay. And when I found out that Adventist was really questioning my daughter, I called a friend of mine over at Emmanuel, and we had Josiah transferred. Well, in the middle of the night, Josiah began to vomit. And with head injuries, you know, you're always really worried about what's happening. So they right. took him in, did another set of scans. <clears throat> and my friend Michelle who's a pediatric neurologist over at Emanuel, came back into the room and put up all the scans. Here's the first set of scans, second set of scans. Here's the ones we just took. And her words were, short of a miracle, I cannot tell you what happened. Hmm. There's no broken bone. There's no bleeding on the brain. The only thing is a lacerated tongue. Wow. Yeah. So I call my dad. I'm like, Dad, you're not going to believe. You're not going to believe. Josiah, there's nothing. He has no broken bones. It was just his tongue and my, he's going to live. And my dad said, I know. Hmm. And my dad died that night. 
Wow. Oh, goosebumps. Woo. Yeah, that is the hair worms, yeah. That... So it was interesting. You get to his house and there's food and water put out for his dog. He didn't think take things to bed with him that he would have generally taken to bed. So in the end, my dad, in my mind, gave his life for the life of my grandson, not knowing what could have happened. You know, I'm sure stranger things have happened. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Now, did you want to, did you, do you mind touching on what happened with your son? Oh, I can. Yeah. I don't know how much you want to touch on it but well that's totally up up to you i, I mean, mean we both we both belong to the same club that nobody wants to be a part of right, right. Be a member of, you know um i don't know what do you want to <laughs> what do you want to share what do you want to talk about what i don't know i mean i guess you know with joshua it really made me reflect on <clears throat> um See, and you're still new in the process. I, I feel bad for you because you're in your second year, and that's that's a tough year. It's a really tough year, I thought. You know what it is. Yeah. It's harder than the first year because the first year you're kind of in numb. Very numb. Kind of in shock, yeah. And the second year, things are coming in. You're feeling that grief really powerfully. You're praying to God, and he's not answering, um, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, how how long has it been with you? Oh, my son's been gone seven years, and like I said, we adopted his little baby girl when she was sixteen months. Oh, that's right. When he died, and um, she's ten now, so we're and she's awesome. Um, yeah, you know there were some. I think there was there's some. What do I want to say? inconsistencies in his death that we chose not to pursue mm-hmm. regarding his ex-wife because I didn't want that legacy for, for, uh, my little girl. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of anything more difficult than losing a child. I mean, I, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm, and if it hadn't been for my little granddaughter, I probably would not be here today. I probably would have joined my son and, Right. Um, but when you got that kind of responsibility, you know, you got to, you got to stuff your grief down. You got to try to help her with her grief. It's difficult. Then you're in mid fifties raising a baby. Right. <laughs> it's even more difficult. So. Oh, I know. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's, um, I was going to circle around back around to something that you mentioned and now what the heck was it? I did want to bring up an interesting study that I have at the beginning of the book on uh, that Kaiser had done on um, ACEs or uh, adverse childhood experiences. Yes, yes. Yeah, the ACEs. That those are emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, battered mother, parental uh, separation or divorce, substance abusing mother, mentally ill mother, incarcerated household member. Yeah, and I think I had yeah. seven out of the eight. <laughs> I. I don't know if I was sexually abused or not, but I don't have memories of it if I was. And you said you've got a seven? 
I'm sorry. He's yeah, I think I had seven out of eight or something like that. <clears throat> and it said that. This was a huge study, by the way. And it said that almost two thirds of the participants reported at least one ACE and more than one in five reported three or more. And if you have five, um, you have some serious problems. So anybody in your audience that's been through some of this stuff, if they've been through multiple of those things, it's I think it's really imperative for them to figure out a way, educate themselves, get professional counseling, get positive mentors and role models, and um, find a way to overcome some of those difficulties because they're, they're life-threatening. I mean, people that have a number of those die much earlier. They have much higher rates of diseases than people that don't have those. I mean, it's just on and on and on. So, Now, you have uh, eight. Had, I think they've updated that to 10 now. I think they might have 10 now. I didn't. This was a book's been a few years old, but. My score when they scored me was nine. Wow. You are messed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm that's old. what happens when your parents, well, one of the things they send you into the doctor when you're six years old by yourself. Oh, that's wow. not a good thing. Um, and I think one of the things they, they, I didn't have, but they attributed it on my score because of my father's job and him being gone all the time and abandoning Mm -hmm. us, Mm -hmm. which sounds weird. I mean, we had a great life growing up Mm -hmm. physically, um, tangibly, I guess, Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, emotionally, there was no, no behind the life. And, and love covers a multitude of sins. I mean, it really does. If you love somebody, you can make a lot of mistakes with them, with your kids or whatever. And as long as you love them and show them you love them, I think it covers a lot of multitude, a lot of sins like that. So Right. Right. You know, you know what I'm, I'm looking through here, and I have these, your book... Overcoming Toxic Parenting. This hit me so hard, mm-hmm. Rick. You talk about the rebel, the mascot clown, mm-hmm. and the good right. girl or boy. Right. There are three kids in my family. Right. My middle brother was the dutiful and respectful brother, right. the golden child. Right. My youngest brother was the mascot and clown. Right. Always making someone laugh. Right. Which leaves one. Right. For the last child, me. Right. The rebel. Right. We had four and we fit all four categories. Every one of us exactly in all four categories. Yeah. I. Oh, and the lost child. Oh, the lost child I had, have down... Oh, yeah, that was my brother, Joel. Um, And seeing him, I remember going through watching him with certain things. And when he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital, it was, I had found out he was going to kill himself. And my dad was flying and I wouldn't speak to my mother at that time. So somehow, I don't know how this happened because this was either the late 70s or early 80s. I was able to reach my dad 
when he was in the air and tell my dad what was going on. And it was just within a couple of days, my brother was hospitalized. I remember seeing all these things he was going through, you know, locking himself in his room. He, he was on drugs. He was very antisocial. I shouldn't say antisocial. He was not social. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very quiet. But I never attributed it to mm-hmm. our parents. Right. I thought, well, my brother just has some problems. Mm-hmm. And then I see my other brother doing all of this stuff. And he is funny. Mm-hmm. And he was almost doing whatever it took to keep my parents doing to break whatever. Tension, to break that possible yeah. explosion, right? Before it happens. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And then with me, it's, I kind of think the bad kid, the, the rebel child, at least in my case, I had to, to, build this tenacity in order to survive. Right. And I can remember seeking my parents' attention in everything I did. I mean, from circling names in the phone book of psychiatrists to sleeping under cold vents, which was stupid, just trying to see if my mother was going to cover me up when she went to bed. And she never did. Right. And then it led me on this. It made me feel I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. I could see what they were doing with my brothers, but that same attention didn't come back to me. Right. And there's a whole other dynamic there with my grandmother and, and everything, who was the main role model besides my two aunts in my life. Right. Right. I just never seemed to fit. And there was always this toxic shame. There was this, I was 16, I was 16, uh, and it was like on one of my very first dates, date rape, ended up pregnant. Oh my gosh. Didn't tell my parents about that because... They didn't talk. You didn't talk about anything like that with my parents. Right. right. And I didn't, I just figured I wasn't good enough, mm-hmm. I guess. And one day at school, I started throwing up, go to the doctor. They put me in the hospital. Couldn't find out what was wrong with me. Then after all of these studies and all these tests, find out I'm pregnant. Mm. My dad who had pretty much been my ally when he was at home, started calling me whore, slut, all of these horrible names, would not even speak my name. I'm so sorry. Oh, well, thank you. It's, you know, even, I was thinking about this the other day because I would make up stories about what happened to my baby. Mm -hmm. And as horrific as they were, they were never... as bad as I felt about allowing my parents to say, we will terminate this pregnancy. Mm. And the effects that that had on me and still have on me, I don't think my parents could have foreseen. I remember my mother coming in afterwards and it was really one of the only times I ever remember my mother touching me and she was rubbing my shoulder and she said, don't worry, no one will ever know. 
And I looked at her and I said, you're the one that doesn't want anyone to know, not me. Well, I know now my parents were doing what they thought was best, but it was really, in actuality, the very worst thing they could have done. Right. That kind of brings me to this this table you have here on how toxic parents cope. And the first thing you have on there is denial. Right. And then it goes to projection, sabotage. keeping secrets it pretty much just triangulating is on here um this was my childhood yeah and i can i remember my aunts after my mother died would would say things like well why did your mother just not speak to us why did and my mother had her reasons that i i kind of knew but i really didn't know until my mother died um and she kept secret she wouldn't speak to them she didn't trust anyone and <clears throat> i think there was a lot of projection mm -hmm. i don't know it's just crazy to try and and why are we compelled to look back and try and figure this out well we have an innate desire in us to love our parents. I mean, it's yes. built into us. Those are the people that are supposed to protect us when we're not able to protect ourselves, to feed us, to shelter us, to raise us. And even when those people don't do a good job, we still want to love them. We still oh, yeah. have this need to love our father and our mother. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's one of the more, I think, one of the more powerful biological directives as humans that we have is to, to love our parents because I see pe people who've been horribly abused. These are the most horrible parents you could ever, people you could ever imagine. And yet they still want to love them. They're still making excuses for them. Guys are saying, yeah, well, I, my dad used to beat me, but I think I had it coming. I was a pretty bad kid. No, you didn't. No right. kid deserves to be beat. Right. You know, I don't care what you do. Mm -hmm. And this whole, I think it's important to remember with the rebel thing, right? that what we do doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing bad things. It means we're doing things that our parents don't think we should be doing because somebody might find out or bring shame onto the family. Okay. Right. That's just two different things. Then when you get that reputation, things happen like happened to you that are beyond your control. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that adds to the legacy and just builds that much more and more. How much how you're a black sheep, how you're, you know, causing trouble, a rebel and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it does, not the fault it, of the child. It's it's actually the fault of the parents, but of course they're never gonna take I mean, you should have been taught before you ever went on a date on how a young lady should be treated by a by a man, what kind of man she should go out with. Mm -hmm. All of that kind of stuff, right? Or they should have at least you send a sixteen-year-old girl out into the world and say, "Right, right." You know, because <clears throat> you know, I remember my mother used to when she was working. We lived very close to where you live now, and she would buy us season passes for Six Flags, so she would go to right. work and drop us off five days right. a week. Yeah, horrible things happened. Oh, is that right? We were. Horrible things happen. And with me being, you know, 14, 15, 16 and not really knowing how to navigate what the heck's going on. Right. Or how to rebuff a lot of advances. Right. 
really bad things happen. And I can't speak for my brothers, but that's, you just don't drop your kids off. at And a having a craving for, craving for national, uh, for masculine affection that, and right. attention that adds to it as well. You don't even know that's part of the equation. You know, you have no idea. And yeah. I found it interesting that and this may not be interesting to anyone, but me, but it seems like <laughs> everyone that I have dated has been at least 12 years older than me. Oh, really? Now yeah. that is interesting. Why do you think that is? I didn't have my dad. Yeah, right. You know, I can look at it now. And yeah. when I was younger, it wasn't that big of a difference. It, it right. didn't make that much difference. But now that I'm 60, it makes a lot of difference. Yeah, 72 is a pretty old guy, Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's... I was never talked to about any of that. Mm. You know, we just weren't talked to. And then I think that put me in a pendulum to mm. over talk to my kids. Mm. You know, everyone in my family that smoked right. ended up dying of smoking related cancer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Everyone was an alcoholic. I was so petrified to have to watch my kids go through that. Right. I went overboard. Well, and we do that. I yeah. think we all do that. I think we did. We sheltered our kids way too much. They were too innocent when they became adults. They were, I mean, you know, and they turned out good, but it's, you know, it was tough for them. I think, I think we naturally have to go through some um, difficulties in life in order to develop character and, and become strong human beings. And I don't think we allowed our kids to really go through a lot of difficulties in life. And I think a lot of parents do the same thing, but it's that fear of, of having them to have to go through or deal with some of the things that we had to deal with as, as kids. Right. <laughs> you say that. And I, I, I'm thinking about with, with my kids and the ways I enabled them, but I was also like the Nazi mom, you know, there were eight <laughs> kids and it was oh either God. manage or be taken away. You have to be that kind of mom with eight kids, don't you? Oh my gosh. But then my husband would come in and he was the good guy. So it was always, I was put in charge of discipline Mm. and then he was in charge of undoing any discipline. Right. At least Mm. that's the way it seemed. You know, I would hear the kids just make sure dad grounds you and not mom. <laughs> because he'll ground you for life and let you off within a couple of days. Mom right. sticks well, to that. That might she be says. normal for everybody. I don't know. They always want dad to do that. Yeah. My dad's not as bad as mom usually. <clears throat> I just, you know, I remember the dread when my mother would say, You sit in the corner and wait for your dad to come home. Oh, yeah. Right. But then that was the really the extent of it. My dad was yeah. not. He well, it's abusive. the psychological warfare that goes on, right? Yeah. You know, and you know, I find it still is going on today with my aunts, who I love more than anything. But one of them wrote me this this message, and it was so bizarre. Part of it was really sweet and nice, and part of it was paraphrase: "You're damned to hell." Um, <laughs> and I just. I don't know right. if it's the Southern saccharine type of a uh, very sweet, but I'm going to kill you here underneath right, this. Right. 
And then the other aunt, it seems almost like she's wanting to keep tabs on me or wants to know what's going on with me, but she doesn't want anyone else in the family to know that that's what's happening. Sure. So that's yeah. really, that's hard for me because I that long for that contact, but I know I'm not good enough to have it. Mm. So, wow. or that's, that's what I feel I'm being told. It's interesting that you can, can articulate that, verbalize that. That's a pretty powerful statement. I don't think I would have been able to a few years no, ago. No, you are worth it, right? You just, you know, your self-talk is done. Uh-huh. But your parents said to you, like, mine are like, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything, blah, blah, blah. Nobody would like you if they knew you, how you're really like. You right, know, right. I, I saw some. I still some... hear those sometimes, you know. I still say those to myself from time to time. It's hard. It's hard. I saw it some is. some social media posts that my aunts and my two female cousins, their daughters, there was one daughter in each family. They had gone on this trip and I just looked at it and I had this, it was like I had been hit in the stomach with a baseball bat because I used to be a part of that and now I'm not. Uh, and that brings up this point in here in your book about the abandonment and how strong that feeling is. Right. And here I'm 60 years old. That shouldn't be bothering me. Yeah, but when you're a little kid and you get abandoned, how, that's the most terrifying thing there is. Isn't it? I mean, imagine you're a child and here's these big people that are supposed that you rely on to feed you, to clothe you, to shelter you for everything you need to survive. And then they're gone. Or like with my granddaughter, her dad dies. Her mom's out of the picture. Hmm. All she's got is grandma and grandpa. She's terrified one of us is going to die, and she's only going to be stuck with one person to take care of her. I mean, oh, I bet. Really, she is. So it's a powerful thing. It's not, I wouldn't feel bad about it. I mean, you know, I think it's natural that you would be concerned about being abandoned still, especially yeah. if it's happened your whole life. It's that it's, it's a repeat pattern mm -hmm. that. And it, it brings back that toxic shame again. You're not good enough to be a part of the group. Right. You're exactly. not good enough for me to actually communicate with you, but I can look at all your social media posts. Well, and the likelihood is that had nothing to do with it. It yeah. was a situation that got set up, but we exactly. tend to look at it and go, oh my God, they think I'm not good enough to be part of the family, blah, blah, blah. You know, because that's the way it's been. So Right. Now, I did cut them off at a time when I was at my worst, yeah. like in 2008, 2009, after my parents had died and when I started spiraling. They saw the spiral and they would make comments, but they they didn't really try to intervene. It was, Tara, you're making your family look bad. You're making yourself look bad. And I would lash out. Yeah. I can see that now. But I feel almost foolish thinking, okay, here I'm on the other side of that and healing. And no one's saying, oh, it's okay that you heal. It's good that you heal. Right. Take some time to yourself. You, you deserve to have time to yourself to heal. I understand. Yeah. I'm here if you need me, right? Yeah. But there is no one right. there. And one, your book, you know, I, I, there's one thing in here that you're talking about. Too often, inadequate parents expect their children to somehow take care of them and meet their needs. 
Right. And I'm well, I seeing that play out. Yeah, well, I can remember parenting my little brothers and sisters and cooking for them and, and yeah, I have to go get my dad, my stepdad out of a bar because he was too drunk and some guy was going to beat him up if I didn't give him, you know, that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. that's parenting your parents, which is a horrible thing to do to a kid. But I see again, that playing out school, right? with one of our children. I don't remember having to do that with my parents. Hmm. I think they scared me too, too much. <laughs> Right. But through kind of through the grapevine, I've heard my grandson, who's 23 now, is saying, and this is just breaks my heart that he cannot leave because he's afraid for his brother and sister. Yeah, that's terrible. I, you know, just to comment on your aunts and stuff, you and I both know from having lost a child that people say, they don't know what to say, and they say stuff that's hurtful and harmful, and they don't mean it. They mean it to be helpful. Our, a pastor at my son's service said said that I that he prayed that, that the Johnsons would forgive all the stupid things people were going to say to him in the next two months. Yeah. And I thought that was so prophetic because so many people said so many stupid things, hurtful things, mm -hmm. but they don't realize it. They don't, they're trying to help. They, they, can, they care, but... They try to say something which yeah. in actual, I mean, it's in my view has proven better than people that turned their back and never said a word. And I lost a lot of friends. Trust me. When our son died, we lost tons of friends that never heard from him. Family even, we never heard from him or anything. So mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? Write some books, retire, <laughs> move to Texas. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> New podcast for a living. Yeah. Pack yeah. for Greece. Right. Man, I've been looking forward to that. I've been counting down for a year. I know. That's going to be awesome. I want to hear all about it. I hope you post a lot of pictures. And... Oh, I want to. I was going to laugh, too. I'm sorry. This is probably not the time to bring this no, up. No, do it. You posted something about guys calling you honey and babe and oh, sweetheart. You saw that? I did. I just laughed because as an older guy, if a young woman serves me or whatever, I'll say, thank you, sweetheart. You know, I'm just yeah, that's no not hitting on her. But I've not heard that happen with a 60 year old woman before, but even though you don't look 60, but still, well, thank you. I was like, you know, it's kind of a thing that an old guy does to a young woman. I think not so much. Well, this is a situation sort of that, and it's not many, many of the people that are, that I have not <laughs> blocked for being very, very inappropriate. Those are very, people are very respectful. It's a select few that will right. send me an instant, instant message. Hey, mm. honey, I sure like that red lipstick. Right. Um, well, I'm glad I didn't say I was going to comment on how much I liked your red lipstick. Oh, see, that would be it. fine. That would be <laughs> fine. But it's just like the tone that right. maybe because I'm tattooed and the bad chick and I ride a motorcycle and all of this stuff. That well, it's okay. there's no face-to-face. -face, there's no face-to-face -face humiliation of getting shot down either. So. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so that's where that, that came out of. I mean, coming from the South, it's always... Oh darling sweetheart right. it's the way in which it's used you're right you are right yes definitely. That i feel that demeaning 
quality coming Uh back in. I think it is disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of the people that have done that messaged me back. One guy unfriended me and blocked me. And I'm thinking, whoa, thanks for taking the trash out. He, I mean, he he saw himself in it. That's funny. And then another guy said, hey, if I, if I had said things that were inappropriate, I really apologize. And I appreciated that. Sure. Good. Well, I hope if you're ever down in Dallas, you come and look me up. And oh, for sure. Be awesome. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll have to take you to some of the, the, the good places to eat. <laughs> I was going to suggest that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the, you've noticed restaurant rows down there. Oh yeah. And they don't yeah, have that here. Yeah. And who knows what's a good restaurant? And what isn't most of them are really expensive. I'm finding but. they are expensive. Abuelos. I don't know if you've seen Abuelos or not. It's a really good place to eat. Abuelos. I've not. Abuelos. No. Joti Garcia's. And then there's the little, you know, like boutique restaurants yeah. that are great. But right. Coming, I just find a little shack in the middle of nowhere that does barbecue is what I want to find. Those are the best barbecue places, right? They are. They are. There yeah. was a place in Arlington when I moved there. It was called Red Brian's, and I think now it's called David's. Maybe it's huh. David's Barbecue. It's probably the best barbecue I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I haven't heard. Of and it you know, I don't know if you've made this discovery yet. It's not really in Dallas. You have to get out a little bit way away in the country. The best food you can find at gas stations. You know, and that's completely different from Oregon. And I've noticed that. Yes. It is good food at the gas stations. I'm like, what is it, QT or some kind of gas station. They have great food there. And it's like, Oregon, if you want to get tomain poisoning, you eat it at a place at the gas station. You know, when dad and I would take our southern u.s road trips we would stop at these gas stations in in like alabama mississippi and they would have hush puppies and fried catfish and just all of these delicious southern you know foods i had never tried catfish and i love it oh i love it never eaten it before and i love it it's like wow that's really good you know well i asked for it when we first moved to oregon and they looked at me like i was out of my mind it's like that's a bottom feeder why would you and then the things that they, the way they cook it up here is just wrong. It's yeah. just wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Well, Rick, thank you so yeah. much. It's been my pleasure. Oh, I love this. Anytime you need a guest, give me a call. And... Well, anytime you want to come on, let me know if you have something you want to talk about. All right. We'll I always it. got to rant about something. So. Oh, I know it. That's the best. <laughs> Might not be what you want to talk about. But... Hey, we make it work. All right. We make well, it work. Well, Good. thank you so much. I really yeah, appreciate it. It's been my it. pleasure. Thank you. Uh-huh. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. you I'll try. I just need all. to realize what my limits are and when I need to pull back. Right. I have the tendency That's to dive in way too far. A frame. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Overachiever kind of, right, that we fall into, especially the rebels. Right. Once it's... we get over rebelling, we, we put, tend to put our focus into being successful in life and right, right. Way too much energy and effort doing it. So exactly. And I want to enjoy the, this time that I have left, however long it may be. Exactly. Okay. Well, cool. 
Nice talking to you. You too. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, you can hold my book up if you want in front of the oh, camera. Oh, yes. For the ones that are on video. Great. This is the one I have. I have the other one on um, grandparents raising grandchildren. Right, right. Yeah, that sold about 12 copies. Oh, damn. <laughs> but this one is, uh, I mean, you've sold over a million books. Yeah, somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah. That's just amazing. And I didn't even know about that when we were became friends on no, Facebook. Nobody knows me. I'm like my my publisher always said I was the biggest selling author that nobody's ever heard of before. So <laughs> Well I'm not should. sure that's a good thing, but they should. You guys go out, get this book. It is amazing. It's amazing. Well, Rick, thanks again. All right, and enjoy your retirement. And I hope to make it down to Texas maybe this summer, maybe not. Yeah, but I don't think I'm going to be back to Portland anytime. So I don't blame you. I got to go sit in the sun for a while. So, <laughs> yes, you take advantage of that sun, and I've got to get to a gig. So, thank you right. again. And hopefully, okay. I'll speak to you soon and maybe see you sooner. I hope so. All right. All right. Nice sounds good. Thanks, Rick. That, everyone, was Rick Johnson. He is such a wonderful man. And really, if you get a chance, this is a fantastic book, Overcoming Toxic Parenting by Rick Johnson. It is filled with my story. And it could be your story as well. So check it out. I'll put the links in the, in the description box in the show notes below. In the meantime, you have a fantastic rocking week. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for joining us.